Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Today, we're talking about deadly pranks and killer clowns. Happy April Fool's Day. But that wasn't a lie. Amanda, are you missing an excuse to make crepes this year? I am. Last year's was fantastic. And I had crepes for like four days. Yeah, I had a lot of crepes and I was happy about it. I bought like a crepe maker thing. Used it that one time, then never again. Really? Yeah, I know. I should have done it more. But now that I'm thinking about it, I can just pull it out, pull out my crepe maker and crepe around. That's what we want. We want everyone to be making crepes this week. Yeah. And if you do, please send us them. Yes, please. Not in the mail. Even though we do have a P.O. box, we meant more pictures of your crepes. <laughs> I mean, either's fine. fine. Uh, do you do anything for April Fool's Day? Do you run pranks on people? Run pranks? Do you do pranks on anybody? <laughs> I run the neighborhood doing pranks, Lindsay. Yes. <laughs> she runs this town. This <laughs> sandy brown town. Yeah, I paint something a different color and the whole city goes wild. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> not not particularly. I mean, I think the only prank we've ever like done was part of True Creeps. I don't really partake in it, do you? I mean, not really. Honestly, I like forget. You know, like as a kid, maybe I did something, but I I'm saying that I don't think I've ever done anything with the exception of True Crepes last year. And we were very proud of that. <laughs> like too proud. Too proud. Yeah, because I don't think anyone really <laughs> We were like, get it, get it, True Crepes changed her logo. Nothing. It's fine. All we were getting, you know, that little girl that found out she was going to Disneyland and she didn't give a fuck. Yeah, she's like, yeah, that's the face I feel like everyone was giving us last year. Yeah, we, we get it. We get it, guys. It's crepes. We don't. We give zero fucks. When we were doing this episode, like the research for it, I was like, how old is April Fool's? Because I felt like it was newer for some reason. I just didn't feel like people many years ago would care about any of this. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a lot older than I thought. How old is it? So I saw, according to History Channel, that some historians believe that it dates back to 1582. Oh, hot damn. Those are some old fools. What were they doing? They think that it's when France switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar and that people were having a hard time knowing when the new year was and then they'd make fun of them. <laughs> so it was just making fun of people. It's not even pranks. It's just like, you can't read a calendar and like just being a real asshole. Because if so, you know, there's like talk about like making clocks stay the same and not change for daylight savings. I approve that. We're going to have a whole resurgence of this. Well, I approve of it, too, <laughs> because I would prefer to be two hours different than you than three hours so that we can play overcooked. Yes. And also, it would be much more convenient if you were zero hours different <laughs> because you moved right next to me. <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, when I said they'd make fun of them, they'd, they'd have some uh, pretty intense pranks. And by intense... It said that they became the butt of jokes and hoaxes, and they were called April Fools. The pranks included things like having paper fish placed on their backs and being referred to as Posen de Evril, which is the April fish. Don't know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> Sounds silly. Oh, you're such an April fish. I'm such an April fish. Yes. Classic April fish move. 
And it symbolizes a young, easily caught fish and or a gullible person. Okay, so like, interesting. Just question, like, you said paper fish. My silly self immediately thought like a 3D, like, paper fish. Like a fish that is like, looks like like a fish sculpture. I would imagine it's like a piece of cut parchment at that point that was like... Probably not not big mouth bass or whatever people have on their walls. (laughs) Oh, that one that sings? They make shoes yeah. now where you can look like you're wearing fish. Well, you know those shoes I sent you for our trip coming up, and you refused to buy them for some reason, and I don't understand. They didn't look like they would have good support. They didn't look like supportive crustaceans. <laughs> I only wear supportive crustacean shoes. <laughs> How did we get here? Anywho. Who could know? So I, yeah, interesting. I didn't know it was April Fish. Love that. But when we were originally talking about what we wanted to do today, we we thought about the clown from Johnny Ironsight's story that we had in our listener episode for our podiversary. And it had a very creepy story about a clown named Rex Warren Mays. And so we're actually going to play his story again. But if you haven't listened to that episode, I would 10 out of 10 recommend going back and taking a listen. It's from October of 2021. Hello, True Creeps. This is Johnny Ironsights coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. And here's my creepy story from the late 1990s when I was in high school in Southern California. So my parents and I began receiving these collect phone calls from an inmate in Huntsville, Texas. Now, we didn't know anybody in Texas, didn't know anyone in prison. So we just kept rejecting them. But the calls just kept coming. So some time passed, and then my parents handed me a letter, and it was addressed to me, and it was from... Huntsville, Texas, from a penitentiary. And the name on it was Rex Warren Mays. I didn't know who this guy was, but my dad got a little bit upset with me because he thought I was writing inmates. But I was like, hell no, I don't I don't know who this person is. I don't I'm not communicating with any inmates online or anything. So it's been a while and I try to block some of this out, I guess, out of my head. But what I recall, he was writing to me and he wanted to be my pen pal. And I guess I was about 16 or 17 at the time. And he said he had committed some crimes, but he had changed. He became a born again Christian. And he mentioned that he liked rock music and country music and that he was looking for a pen pal. So (laughs) my dad went to the computer and this is pre-Wikipedia. But we were able to find some information on Rex Warren Mays, also known as uh oh, the clown, a death row inmate. So a little backstory from what I found on Uh Oh the Clown. On July twentieth, nineteen ninety two, he was fired from his job as an Exxon contractor. And he claimed that on his way home to tell his wife that he had lost his job, he had actually parked down the street from his home and then went to his next door neighbor's house and just walked right inside. There he saw two little girls, age seven and ten, and he told them, hey, turn down your radio, and the girls refused. So he went to the kitchen, grabbed a knife, and just started stabbing them. And he claimed that his motivation was just that he lost his job and he was upset. But the police do believe that there was a sexual motivation, that he was a child molester, and he had also cut out the girls' eyes, which some psychologists have said that this could be a sign that he was a serial killer, that he might have had previous crimes, or that he might actually turn into a serial killer later on. So after murdering the girls, he returned next door, and then he told his wife that he was fired, and then he took a shower to wipe off the blood. The wife didn't notice. And he just sat in his lawn chair drinking soda, and he just observed as one of the girls' little brothers discovered the body next door, came out screaming, the police show up, and he just watched all this chaos 
the police questioned him, and he claimed that a black man and a Hispanic man were in the area near the home. So the police started you know, looking at that lead, and until they became clear that he was actually lying, but it took 19 months for them to complete their investigation and actually arrest him. And he actually confessed to the crime. But during that time of those 19 months, he was still going to children's parties and performing as Uh-Oh the Clown. So he was convicted of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to death and executed on September 24th, 2002. So I was a bit freaked out to receive this letter. My dad took it and actually set it on fire. And to this day, I don't know how he found me or why. The only thing I could think of is that I had a GeoCities uh, website and I didn't have anything on there relating to inmates or wanting a pen pal or anything. Um, I had like music reviews or like my favorite music or whatever is, you know, pre MySpace and had like book reviews, if I remember correctly. And I later learned that some inmates actually pass around contact information of children to each other. And that's really disgusting to think about that he might have found me somehow. And there's a lot more to this online. Just like it's so disturbing that it, you probably don't actually want to hear about it, uh, what he did to those uh, those little girls. So anyway, that's my story. True Creeps. Hope you enjoyed it. You know, when I think of like Rex Warren Maze, generally creepy as fuck. When you add the element of uh-oh, the clown, I think it just takes it to another level. It does. And that's kind of like what we wanted to focus on today in terms of the cases we're going to cover is cases where there's that clown element that makes you go, oh, God, that's so much worse because of this inclusion. Yeah. Like it's already bad. But then on top of it, you had to bring clowns into it. Yeah, for sure. That and then also we will be covering a couple interesting pranks that have happened throughout history as well. Yeah. We're going to bounce around then. So let's go to one of these pranks and then we'll come back to clowns. In 2012, Randy Lee Tenley died while he was pretending to be Bigfoot. As one does. This one's just, I, I don't understand why, but Randy was 44 and he lived in Montana. He decided that he wanted to dress up as Bigfoot in an attempt to trick drivers so that they would report that there was Bigfoot sightings happening. I couldn't see like why that mattered. Like if he got any sort of like, I don't know, kickback for being sent these videos or something. I'm just like, why did he want sightings to happen? I think he was just being silly. That's how I took it. Just a big old goof. I wanted to see if maybe he owned, I don't know, like a local business or a local hotel where people would want to come more frequently because there was Bigfoot there. I just, in my head, I'm like a 44-year-old man running around pretending to be Bigfoot. There has to be a reason somewhere. Well, there's already a lot of like Montana Bigfoot sightings. Yeah, that's true. So I feel like wherever you see a lot of wilderness, you see a lot of Bigfoot sightings. It just kind of... Honestly, you don't even need a lot of wilderness. You have like a tiny little stretch of woods and people are going to see a Sasquatch. So I think it was for the love of the, the love of the big, the love of the big foot. <laughs> well, he wore a ghillie suit and I'm not sure how people would think that that was Bigfoot. But if you don't know what a ghillie suit is, it's a full body suit made of strips of camouflage fabric usually. And it's often seen like used with the military or with snipers to blend in. It's also used by hunters, like everyday hunters who want to like not be seen by deer. Yeah, but you look like a forest. You look ridiculous. <laughs> or I have seen some brown ones. So I'm like, okay, maybe. But like the greenish ones, I'm like, I don't know where he was going with this. Yeah. 
So while he was standing on the right-hand lane of Highway 93, he was struck by two cars and killed. Also, he was doing this at 1030 in the evening. So wearing a ghillie suit on a highway, decently late at night. I, I don't know how he didn't think this would happen. Yeah, and I also feel like most Bigfoot sightings aren't like, I saw him while I was driving. It's always somebody who's in a woodland setting. Yeah. Also, a few of his friends might have been doing the same thing, but luckily they were not hit by cars. What an interesting pastime. Right? And unfortunately, this this actually was kind of sad. The two cars that hit him were being driven by teenage girls. And so that was one of like their early driving experiences is hitting and killing a man. Yeah, I mean, that is terrible. Like... The whole thing is terrible. Trying to like do a goofy thing. You don't think that you're going to die. I mean, as ill-planned as it was, it is very sad. But yeah, for sure a prank that did not go the way that I'm sure Randy had wanted it to. No. And something that came up later is Randy's friends told authorities that this was not the first time that he had attempted to be Bigfoot and get reports. But it was the first time that he did it along the highway. Yeah. Maybe they didn't work in the past, so he was trying to be near more people. Yeah. It just feel like the timing, 1030 in the evening, a highway. Don't do this, folks. Yeah, for sure. So let's move into our first new killer clown case for today. On April 6th of 1990, Vincent and Alyssa Restivo arrived at the Payless Car Rental Company at 500 Congress Avenue. They had come to drop off a car that they had rented, and it was a white Chrysler LeBaron. Once they got there, they realized that the rental place was closed because there was like a fence that was locked, right? Mm -hmm. And so Alyssa went to a nearby payphone and she flipped through the phone book for a number for like another location for that particular company. And so like, first off, payphone and then phone book. We're talking 90s. Can you remember having to look up a phone number? I do. I do. And I remember just like the joy of being able to like search the internet the first like 20 times I needed a number. Yeah. And I remember payphones. Like I remember like carrying around change to make a call. I like when people make payphones into like little libraries. I think that's very cute. But anyway. So Alyssa found what she thought was another location for the same company. And so she called that number and the person on the other end of the line confirmed that they were associated with that company. So the person who she spoke with told her that she should leave the rental car parked on the street outside of the lot with the keys tucked into the visor. And understandably, she was like, this is sketch as fuck. And the man she spoke with advised her that this was the, the drop off policy that they had where like somebody would come and like take the car and put it into the lot. And so like I could see like in a world where people were short staffed, like you might not have one of the companies open if you haven't been busy. So the Restivos left the car as instructed and they went home. Alyssa still like felt uneasy about it. So she called the number for the other location that she'd already spoken with and she asked them to confirm that they had picked up the vehicle and the person on the other end of the line so that they had no idea what she was talking about and denied ever having spoken with her. And she insisted that the person who she spoke to on each occasion was the same. I'd be hot. Wouldn't you be hot? Yeah. I'd be like, I know it was you. And so she's like, I mean, she's not saying this, but like, I'm imagining she's thinking, this is sketch as fuck. So the receivers drive back to where they left the car and it's gone. They then confirmed the location where they'd actually gotten the car once it had opened, and they said they did not bring the car back onto the lot. So the Restivos reported the car was stolen on April 14th. How frustrating. Oh, I'd be so pissed. So we're going to shift gears a bit, but keep the story in your mind as you listen. On May 26th of 1990, Marlene Warren opened her front door in Wellington, Florida, a few minutes before 11 a.m. When she opened the door, there was a person dressed as a clown who was carrying 
balloons and an arrangement of white and red carnations in a wicker basket. The clown had orange hair with a red nose and the typical happy face makeup. But in addition to their costume, they also had white gloves and black army boots. That's a look. Well, the white gloves, I'm like, okay, they they do sometimes have gloves, but normally like big red or orange shoes, not army boots. Yeah. Also, they hopefully don't come to your house to deliver things. Yeah, I never want that. (laughs) Add to the list of Lindsay's dislikes. I mean, I also don't want anybody like dressed as a thing to come to my house to give me a thing. Because I'm suspect of it, right? Like we've seen, this isn't the first time we've covered like a case like this. Yeah, yeah. I think nowadays, hopefully, with like Ring and things like that, everyone has a front door camera. Oh, I'm looking. If my thing goes off, if someone drives by my house, I'm like, who's there? What are you doing? What do you look like? (laughs) Along with that, I have many dogs. Yeah. So hopefully, no. Anyways, after the clown gave Marlene the balloons and the flowers, the clown shot her in the face. Jesus. Terrifying. Witnesses said that the clown then got into a white Chrysler LeBaron, parked in the front of Marlene's home, and drove off. Hmm. They also noted that the gait of the clown, or shooter, made them think that the shooter was a man. Marlene's son said that he could see his mother from the living room when she answered the door, and then he ran to her when he saw her drop. Marlene was taken to Palms West Hospital and died two days later at 9.30 p.m. So one of the things that's also really sad about this case is that Marlene had another son who had died about a year and a half prior. So now her one son lost a brother than a mother within the span of two years. Yeah. On the day of the shooting, police received an anonymous tip from a woman that said that Marlene Warren had been shot and that the police should look into her husband, Michael Warren, and Sheila Keene. So police spoke with Michael, and he said that he and two of his friends were headed to the Calder racetrack when his wife had been shot. And I don't think it's necessarily, like, abnormal that they would have talked to him. I think even if that tip hadn't come in, like, they look at the husband first. Yeah. So not surprisingly, Michael denied having an affair with Keen, but he admitted that there were rumors about their affair. And on the same day when Marlene was shot, police found that the floral arrangement and the balloons both came from Publix and that a Publix location within a mile of where Keen lived had sold balloons and flower arrangements to a woman matching Keen's description. Interesting. Yeah. And if you don't know what Publix is, it's a grocery store. That's I think it's I don't know if it's in the southwest, but I know it's in the southeast. Yeah, we don't have them here. They're a treasure and a delight. They make amazing subs. But so they even went as far as they looked at like there's a heat sealer on the balloons and like matched the balloons to that heat sealer. Because I'm imagining like over years and years of use, there's like little notches on it. Yeah. That like, right. So they like they were like, no, it was this balloon. Oh, wow. I didn't think you could find where a balloon came from like that. That's interesting. Yeah, they looked at, like, manufacturers of the balloons. They looked at, like, what type of balloon it was, where it was manufactured, and where it was sold. And then they did the same thing for the particular flower arrangement. Because it's, like, a very identifiable flower arrangement. It wasn't just, like, a bouquet. But so, it seemed like police moved very quickly in looking into this, right? Which is good, but then it's going to slow down. But so, first, again, on that same day, witnesses from a local costume shop recounted selling an orange wig, a red nose, and a clown costume, as well as face paint to a woman matching Keen's description. They also noted that she had asked for extra white face paint to ensure her face was covered. And when they asked her if she needed, like, clown shoes, she said no. 
suspicious. Why not go for the whole look? I mean, just do the whole thing. I mean, I guess like you want to get away, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, running away. Can you imagine a clown running with the giant shoes? Yeah, like I, I think, again, more horrifying if it's the whole look, right? Yeah. Because then it's like a clown, not a person dressed like a clown, which is what a clown is. But, you know. Yeah. So police interviewed Sheila Keene's husband, Richard Keene, on May 27th of 1990. And Richard said that his wife had left him in January of 1990 and that there was rumors that she was having an affair with Michael Warren. Richard said, and this surprised me, that he didn't have any ill will towards his wife or Michael, but that Michael was rumored to be having numerous affairs. So if he was having affairs, it wasn't just with Keene. Richard also noted that Keene had asked him about a 38 caliber gun that he had owned. But she had said that it was missing. And he specifically said that it was an off-brand gun. So it wasn't a Smith & Wesson and it wasn't a Colt, which I thought was interesting. I didn't know they made off-brand guns. Yeah, like with everything. It didn't even occur to me that that was a thing. Fair. So Keen was also interviewed on May 27th. And Keen denied that she was having an affair with Michael and that they were just friends. She also admitted that they had gone on business trips together, which, okay, on the morning of the shooting, Keene said that she had been looking for cars to repossess in several cities, but couldn't provide details about particular vehicles or addresses that she had visited. Sketch as fuck. Continuing. Sketch as fuck, yes. Some of Keene's neighbors were interviewed on May 28th, and they confirmed that they had seen Michael Warren at Keene's place on and off starting in January. Interestingly, neighbors noted that Michael came to Keene's apartment complex at all hours and that he typically drove different cars and that they had bargain rental stickers on them. So like I would be like, OK, he works at a car dealership or something like that. Yeah, that's where my brain would go. And they were also like very adamant that it was him. Like they were like, oh, I knew his face because he came around so much, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. You know, like your neighbors, you know, their family members or people that come to see them. You know their cars after a while. Yeah. I mean, I know my neighbors like they're watching. Oh, your neighbors know you. They know me. They're watching. They're looking around. <laughs> I like it. The autopsy of Marlene was completed on May 29th. And the ballistics examiner stated that the bullet was not from a Smith & Wesson or Colt. Interesting. So on May 30th, a white Chrysler LeBaron was found in a Winn-Dixie parking lot abandoned. And Winn-Dixie is also a grocery store, right? Another grocery store. Yeah, we're doing a tour of Southern grocery stores. Southeastern Southern grocery stores. So the VIN number matched the car that had been stolen from the rental company. And that same company also consented to the search of the vehicle. In the vehicle, police found a brown hair, orange colored fibers that were similar to the wig, and a brown Publix bag. And just as a note, a lot of the photos of Sheila Keen show her as blonde now, but at that time, she had brown hair. So Michael ran multiple businesses, one of which was a used car and rental car business. Richard and Keene repossessed vehicles. That was the business they had, and they worked with Michael. James Sasser and Ray Hawk, who ran an auto parts store called Paul's Parts, regularly worked with Keene and Richard and said that they remembered seeing her come in in a clown costume. Oh my gosh. Like, this is a lot, right? Like, we're seeing, like, she was the one that bought the flowers. She was the one that had the costume. She bought the balloons. She was seen, like, by people who know her in this costume, right? Yeah, she made a lot of dumb mistakes. There's a, Well, I mean, not just that, but, like, this feels really clear, right? Yeah. 
So there was a search warrant that was executed. And per that search warrant, police were looking for the gun she used, ammunition, the clown costume, makeup, wigs, hair and a hairbrush, and army boots, among other evidence. And some of Michael's employees said that they had overheard him at work talking to Keene on the phone and that he said things like that he needed to get rid of the bitch. And then he said, I'm going to end the bitch while talking about his wife. You know, typical work conversation. Yeah, as one fucking says. And then despite all of this, Marlene's case goes cold and it's untouched for 23 years. (laughs) I can't. Like, what the actual fuck? Like, did they want surveillance footage? Right? Like, how much else could they have asked for? That's nonsense. I I don't understand how the state could even conceive of a jury that would have been like, "Mm, I'm not too sure. She was no, as we've said it before, Chad DeBall. (laughs) Jesus fucking Christ. Like, it seemed like she was barely trying to not be caught, right? Like, exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah, like, just no criminal mastermind here. The fact that, like, she wasn't caught blows my mind yeah lucky lucky criminal here fucking lucky so let's continue marlene's murder case was opened back up in 2013 and they ran dna evidence they had collected before per the palm beach county sheriff's office an arrest was made in 2017 when dna evidence confirmed that one of the people they suspected for the murder matched and that was sheila keen warren (gasps) so fucking prize Right? Keenan Michael got married in 2002 in Las Vegas. But don't worry, remember, they weren't having any sort of affair. Yeah, they just went on to, like, be together for 12 years before getting married. Right. Sheila had started going by the name Debbie. As one name Sheila does. Yeah. The DNA was connected from the hair that was found in the Chrysler LeBaron. Keen's trial is set to begin in March of 2022. There isn't much being reported about the start date, unfortunately, and it has been pushed a few times. Yeah, so that makes me think that it may have gotten pushed again, because like every time anything has been filed, there's like a thousand articles on this. Yeah. So once the trial does start, you know, we'll be covering this in our True Crime Digest. Yeah. So let's chat about another prank. So on April 1st, 2010, a newspaper in Jordan published a front page prank article that caused a lot of problems in the area. And in the article, it was claimed that UFOs had landed in the desert close to Jaffer. And they described the aliens as being 10 feet tall. Absolutely terrifying. (laughs) One, I don't want aliens. And if they are here, I certainly don't want them to be super fucking tall. Also, we are very short people. So that's even scarier. Yeah, I'm 5'2 and three quarters. So like, that's almost twice my height. <laughs> like, that's a lot. Jesus. Anywho, it would, I don't think they fit in my house. They wouldn't. At least not in my basement. But anywho, so the article also mentioned that all the communications went down because of like the aliens presence and the objects that were flying around with them being there. And in the article, it also said that the town had been hit by flying saucers during the night when it was landing and that the light caused residents to run into the street. So people didn't realize that this wasn't real. People were freaking out and they kept their kids home from school because they were like, "Okay, we have aliens. Like, what what do you need to learn? Right. Yeah. We've got 10 foot aliens about to kill us. We need to hide. Yeah, for sure. The mayor of Jaffer notified security authorities and prepared to issue an evacuation order of the entire town because he, too, misread the, the article. And the town had about 13,000 people. And security even spent time looking for those aliens. And I mean, you know, good thing they didn't find them. That's good. But. Right. Right. And the 
newspaper formally apologized for like you know the inconvenience that they had caused and they even almost got sued over it yeah doesn't this remind you of war of the worlds in a sense like but the print version yeah, it absolutely does. And I mean, I feel like a lot of times when you see something, it used to be that if you saw something in print, it meant it was reputable. Yeah. Because not everything could be printed. And now that is not the case at all. <laughs> Even a little bit. No. Like, I'm like, hmm, it's on the internet. I'm suspect of this. Right. And then you have to look at like six different places to make sure that it's real. You're like, this is a news article. Is this from a publication that I have heard of? Right. Right. Because all the random news sources online are not correct. <laughs> yeah. Ah, great. <laughs> well, let's talk about another terrifying clown. So there was or there is, I should say, a creepypasta clown and it might have inspired a killing. His name is Laughing Jack. And he's a clown character from the website. And he befriends children as their imaginary friend before slicing them open. And in one story I saw, he replaced their organs with candy. Delicious. That sounds like a Christmas monster, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. And he wears like all black and white. There's a ton of pictures online. And then like a lot of people obviously write different stories about him. So he's done a lot of different things. Yeah. So who we're going to be talking about is a 12-year-old girl. And her name was not technically released because she's a minor. And in all of the court documents that came up from this case, her name is J.T. However, we did some sleuthing and we actually were able to find her name. But out of respect, because she was a minor and just recently isn't a minor anymore, we're not going to share her name. But there is a document that they forgot to redact, as well as Lindsay did some uh, social media sleuthing. Some creeping. Yeah, yeah. So in 2015, this girl, I'm going to call her JT since the court docs did. Mm -hmm. The 12-year-old girl, JT, said that Laughing Jack told her to do some horrible things. JT lived in Indiana with her dad. His name is Edwin Torres, stepmom, Maria, half-sister and half-brother in an apartment in Elkhart, Indiana. She began hearing voices. She also developed an alter ego months before the incident took place. Court docs say that she displayed symptoms of severe mental illness, and the symptoms, unfortunately, intensified in early 2015. I think sometimes when I hear the phrase, like, alter ego, what I think of is, like, Hannah Montana. Yeah. And, like, that kind of thing. And we're going to talk about it more, but just, like, setting the scene, it seems very much like she was displaying multiple personalities. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting that so many sources say alter ego and that kind of phrasing and it feels just like a little bit more casual than I, what I think JT was experiencing at this time. As a 12-year-old. Yeah, I think that they just didn't want to say the diagnosis until it was officially declared, would be my guess. Yeah, that might be so. But yeah, it, it just kind of takes away from what actually was really happening. Yeah. She also had poor grades in school, which seemed like it might have started around the same time. I couldn't find exactly, but it seems like they just progressively were getting worse. She suffered headaches. She had difficulty sleeping. And she also experienced what they called blackouts. And it wasn't like she'd fall asleep. It was just she couldn't remember what she had done for a period of time. She talked less and she also spent more time in her room. Several people noted that she discussed hearing voices of people named Star and Anna. Star would tell her to hurt people, while Anna would tell her to ignore what Star was saying. So JT became obsessed with Laughing Jack, and this breaks my heart. 
she asked multiple people for help because she knew that something was wrong. And so in the court docs, they talk about her approaching her mom, Deshay, Hyder, and Patrick for help, and also her father, Edwin. A school counselor urged her father, Edwin, to take her to a mental health professional, but he ended up taking her to the family doctor instead. Later, after several appointments were scheduled with a counselor, JT ended up missing them because of insurance issues. And then her father had back surgery, so he couldn't take her to the office. So a culmination of just a shitstorm, right? Yeah. And this makes me really upset. I know there are different sides to like the uh, healthcare system here, but a little girl needing help with her mental health should never be stopped by insurance issues, right? Yeah, I mean, I think a child who is in need of medical care, yeah, of any kind, should be able to get medical care. I mean, honestly, you know what? I'm going to say it. Everyone deserves medical care. Like, yeah. I am like a big proponent of health is a human right. <laughs> and yes, you know, whether it's mental or physical, we're going to talk about how the adults in her life have failed her. But so did our system. Exactly. Our schools, our health system, you know, just over and over, everyone who should have been able to help her didn't, in my opinion. Yes, yes. So around May or June, Edwin noticed that JT had drawn inappropriate pictures that involved Laughing Jack. She also started to dress in white and black clothes, which were similar to how he had described Laughing Jack as dressing, right? Mm -hmm. And she would also paint herself white and black like a clown. That would creep me the fuck out. And I was a creepy child. Right. <laughs> that would have I would be like, oh, no. And she also started becoming preoccupied with candy, which was like Laughing Jack's like whole shtick. Right. Like he like filled kids with candy because it was his favorite thing. Yeah. So on July 23rd, JT texted her friend, JP, another minor, so that she could meet her at a nearby park at 10 p.m., which is really late for a 12 year old to be meeting someone at a park. Yeah, for sure. And she also sent a text in capital letters that she wanted to leave that night because she could not take it anymore. She also mentioned that she was about to snap and they discussed bringing like provisions like food, water and clothing. JP, from everything it seems like, was actually like a, a true friend of JT and she was aware of her multiple personalities and she realized that she was texting Star that night, which is very interesting. She was like, they text different. And that's like one of the things that I, I feel like you see more often when you're hearing about someone with multiple personalities is that people who are close to that person can tell because like their language patterns will be different. Their mannerisms will be different. Right. And also, I think after what we're going to talk about, what happened that night later, she figured it out when she met with her. Oh, who I was texting with definitely was not normal JT. Yeah, absolutely. So that night, the family ate dinner they were watching TV. JT's half-sister went to bed and then her half-brother was out. So he wasn't even home that night. Edwin later discussed her odd behavior. She kept displaying a big grin and showing all of her teeth and then stood with a strange posture. I don't like it. Mm -mm. And then she also kept insisting that she was fine. So like imagine a little girl standing there, giant smile. Lindsay's giving me a giant scary smile. And then like standing weird. I don't smile with my teeth normally, so, like, I can't. You just look like you're in pain, though. I know. I look like that meme where he's showing all of his teeth and it's like a eesh yeah. kind of thing. Like, that's how. So you smile with your teeth. I don't do that as much. So for you, like, it makes sense. It doesn't look scary. But for me, it does look scary because I don't smile with my teeth. Anywho, sorry. We're not, we're not talking about my smile. But I couldn't imagine, like, sitting at a dinner table with someone smiling really big. Yeah, I would not like that. So later that night, Edwin and Maria heard a loud noise and then they started to smell smoke. Maria opened JT's door 
and smoke poured out of her room into the hall. Not great. Not great. Not great. JT was standing in the middle of her room and it sounds like she didn't even move. Like when Maria opened the door, she didn't like run out. She didn't really do anything. She just kind of stood there. Edwin then ran into the room and saw the fire and it was on the floor. And then there was a bigger fire that was in the closet. Maria then took JT into the hallway and Edwin attempted to put out the fires. Maria, a couple seconds later, screamed that JT had a knife. So Edwin ran into the hallway and he saw Maria knocking on JT's half-sister's door. And it sounds like it was all very, very quick. So it sounds like he had time to react. I don't think he did. When the half-sister opened the door, Maria was bleeding and said, I'm dying. Call the police. That's when 911 was called. Yeah. Edwin found JT near the front door of the apartment. And she was still holding the knife and standing with a weird posture. He says that when he looked into her eyes, he did not recognize her. She was someone different. Woof. He said that they needed to leave or they were all going to die in the fire. She then responded in a, what he says, a clownish voice. Stay back and don't come closer. He then approached her and she started to swing at him with the knife. There was a struggle at the door. And he was finally able to get the knife away. And then as he did, she ran out of the building. But when she was doing that, he realized, oh, I just got stabbed. So he looked down and he was bleeding heavily. Goodness. So he didn't run after her. He actually ran back inside to get the others out. And he found his stepdaughter. And when he did, she was like, I think Maria's dead. So him and the stepdaughter then ran outside. So police and firefighters then showed up. When they found Maria, she was lying on the floor in one of the bedrooms. She was taken to the hospital and she was then pronounced dead, which is is very heartbreaking because like it seems like she was going into that room to save JT. Yeah. So her cause of death was multiple stab wounds to her face and torso. She also had a stab wound that was almost four inches deep in her chest. So remember that JT ran out and remember that she had texted JP earlier so she met up with her. So on her way, she washed the blood off of her hands in a nearby waterway. And when she met with JP, she told her that she had set a fire and stabbed her parents. The pair of them then walked along the railroad track and left Elkhart. JT changed her clothes at some point. And the following morning, July 24th, a man named Zachary Sleeper woke up to a knock on his door. And when he opened the door, it was JT and JP. They claimed that they had been hiking with their families and they got lost. And they asked for food. One girl was barefoot. I'm assuming that was JT because she like fled from the fire. Yeah, it didn't say in the court documents, but I had the same assumption. Yeah. So he thought that was suspicious because there was no hiking trails in the area. And also like that's just super strange, right? Like two young girls, one of them's not wearing shoes. They probably didn't look like they were dressed for hiking. Like, yeah, bizarre. So he offered to call their families and they avoided giving him any information. He asked them to hang on the porch while he cooked them something to eat. And while he made them food, he called the cops, thinking that they may have been runaways. And I would also say, like, just generally, like, as like a man in 2015, I would not let two teenage girls come into my home just because people are going to think things. Even if you're helping them, people are going to think things. And it would just be safer if they were outside for everyone. Well, that and then there's so many different like heists, right, that involve children. Yes. Like you go to help a child and then you become sex trafficked or something gets stolen or something horrible happens. So, yeah, he made a good choice of just hang out on the patio. Let me go do something. 
Yeah, exactly. If kids are telling you that they're lost and they need to come inside of your house and they won't tell you who to call, you know what that's making me think of, right? Yeah. Amanda's like, I'm ready. I'm ready. I know what you're saying. And it's black eyed kids. Like, that's what it makes me think of. Like, it gives you chills because it's like, oh, no. But so, yeah, police came and JT and JP were taken into custody. JT was placed in the Elkhart County Juvenile Detention Center. So then on November 12th, three doctors determined that JT was not fit to stand trial and diagnosed her with dissociative identity disorder, or it used to be called multiple personality disorder. And it was decided that she was not competent to stand trial. From news articles, it said that 16 psychiatric facilities refused to take her and the state was also trying to get around having to basically deal with her. She spent at least 117 days at the juvenile detention center begging detention staff for help. That breaks my heart that she's like being held. She did something bad, but her entire life she's asking for help and no one is wanting to give her help. When you are a child, you don't have a lot of rights. Yeah. like You can't just go to a doctor and be like, you treat me now. Like your parent has to take you. As far as I'm aware, like, I mean, like, unless life or death normally, yeah. In an ER, different. But, like, your parent has, like, consent to treatment. So she can't do this for herself. And she's a kid. And on top of it, it seemed like she had shitty fucking parents. She did. And we'll go into why later, too. Yeah, we'll go into why. But I, like, I just, like, need to say a little bit of that now because it makes me so mad that, like, it's not as though she arrived at this particular mental issue through genetics alone. Right. Right. And then I do want to reinforce, this is a 12-year-old girl. So when we're saying all of this happened, I know even when I was reading, I'm like, oh, like she killed someone. But then when you go back and you're like, this is a 12-year-old girl that begged for help. Yeah. And then you read more and more into it. You're like, I feel for her. I mean, I obviously I feel for Maria and it's horrific that that's how she died. But also there were ways of helping her before this happened. There can be more than one victim and there can be one more than one way to be victimized. Yeah. So from what I could find, they were trying to find a better suited facility for her and, you know, to take care of her and give her the help that she needed. And it seemed like a lot of the places just kept giving reasons why she wouldn't be a good fit for their program. So finally, on December 1st of 2015, Elkhart County probation officers transported JT to LaRue Carter Hospital. There were also several periodic review hearings that happened in between all of this. She showed signs of improvement while she was at the hospital, but she still displayed symptoms associated with DID and PTSD. So her care and her case went through the court and facilities for a long time. And while it was kind of going through the court system and while she was receiving various treatments, a lot of interesting information came up throughout the hearings. There was some degree of premeditation. And they know this because prior to the attack, they found that she searched online for things like how to sharpen knives, how to hide from police. She searched for a video featuring someone getting stabbed to death, looked up violent stories, and then also the song Pop Goes the Weasel. And that's a connection to Laughing Jack. I do not like that last one. That really gets me. Yeah, like it just plays into the clown more. Yeah, anytime anytime we play into the clown more, I'm like, ugh. Yeah, yeah, very scary. So she also had set up with her friend to leave home that night prior to the murder. So she knew like, I have to leave and I'm not coming back. Yeah. She also had hid the knives in her room. So it's not like she had to like leave her room to get a knife. She already had it. Yeah, that's kind of that's extra shady. 
Yeah. She set fire to her bedroom and she disabled the smoke alarm either in or near her bedroom before the attack. And it was reported on several occasions that she didn't remember much of that night. So remember how I said she'd kind of black out? She had blacked out several times early in the evening. And then when she went into her bedroom and from her going into her bedroom until she met with her friend, she doesn't remember. That's really hard. And right. And so we talked about shitty parents, right? Yeah. And maybe they have grown as people. I hope that for them. I hope that they have learned to do better by their children and that they've become better people because one, they should just do that. But two, because their children deserve that. And we know that JT had a really traumatic childhood. So she lived with her mom to Shay until she was 12, which was when she did this. And we also know that her mom had a traumatic childhood. It's been reported that she was sexually abused by several relatives and that she grew up around controlled substances. So it's not surprising that she then would abuse alcohol and control substances for the most of her life. And this information comes directly from the case text itself. So we're not just like wildly speculating about what happened to her mom. Like, it seems like her mom also had a shitty childhood with shitty parents. And so now we're looking at multiple generations of trauma. Yeah. But so Deshay was diagnosed with depression, bipolar disorder, and PTSD. And we know that so Deshay and JT's father, Edwin, had an unusual relationship. And JT had been physically abused by her half-brother and was also bullied at school. So after Edwin and Deshay broke up, Deshay would go on to marry a registered sex offender who was physically abusive to JT. At one point, he hurt her so badly that she was in the hospital for three to four days. Yeah. A psychologist who assessed JT after Maria's death expressed an opinion that JT was also sexually abused while living with her mother, too. But JT denies that. And I mean, from what I understand about dissociative identity disorder is that it manifests when you have something that you like you're repressing, right? Like it's like this isn't happening to me. It's happening to someone else. And so like your brain creates like this defense. And it's possible that she doesn't remember because that's a fully repressed memory, right? Like that's yeah, that's not me that's happening to. And also like if it's been happening for 12 years of your life or not, I mean, not 12 years, but if it's been happening with some regularity, like, I don't know. My point is just that like her not remembering it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Exactly. And that it's very possible that they could look at a series of her behaviors and go, this really points to this happening. Like this suggests that. Right. And so JT was also verbally abused by her father. At one point, JT's half-sister called the police on Edwin for threatening to physically attack JT's half-brother. When JT was hearing voices, she told her parents that she was hearing voices, right? But we also know that she expressed the level of mental distress that she was in because she was saying, I'm hearing voices. And Edwin would tell her to, quote unquote, shake it off. Like she tripped and like skinned her knee or, you know, like walked into the edge of a table and it's this severe mental distress that's being handled just in such a cavalier way. Yeah. At a at a kid who's like 12 is like a big time <laughs> in a kid's life, right? Because you're about to go through puberty. You're having a lot of changes. Like life starts to get really different around that age. And for her, it was extra different because she moved away from her mom. She was with her father and that was different, maybe better, maybe not, maybe bad in a different way. But like 12 is already hard enough when you don't have all this on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then she begged, right? She's begging all these people for help and not receiving any, any kind of safe place or any type of healing. None of that's happening. Yeah. So from what I saw, she had many different doctors throughout her case. And some have also questioned the care and the diagnosis of other doctors. So 
a whole big debate on that. The case was on hold for a while while she underwent treatment as the state sought to have JT tried in an adult court. There was some procedural back and forth on whatever JT should be tried as, whether it be a juvenile or an adult, or whether JT was competent to stand trial. So part of the reason for this was because if she was tried as a juvenile, she would be released from psychiatric care at 21, whereas her case would not be capped at 21 if she was tried as an adult. So basically to get her treatment that she's been begging for, it's interesting to think that we want to put you in a harsher court so that you can get help. Yeah, still don't like that. There should just be an easy way to get someone help when they really need it. How about it? How about it? So the Indiana Court of Appeals determined that the case should remain on the juvenile level. And court-appointed experts determined that JT was competent to stand trial in 2017. JT's case was tried in 2019 in juvenile court. So at that point, JT was 16. So because it was juvenile court, we don't know the outcome of the case. And while we were creeping, it looked like JT graduated from high school, which is excellent. And it's not clear if she's been released, but we believe that she might have been. Yeah, I think she was. And I think also like there's before COVID and there's after COVID. And this is pure conjecture, but you can't treat the mental illness of someone who is dead. So if they're looking at overcrowding in a facility, they might choose to release people that they may not have otherwise. That's true. Yeah, we're not sure. But there are a few pictures that we were able to find of her and her mother together. We don't know if that was in a facility or outside of a facility, but she does look happy, right? Like she looks like she's doing better, at least. Yeah. I mean, what you can see on social media, who knows? But I'm hoping she's happy and doing better and feels better and got the help that she truly needed. At this point, she'd be 19. Yeah. I mean, I really I hope the same. I hope that she is getting the help she needs and that part of that help is to coming to terms with the terrible thing that she did. Yeah. Because I'm a proponent of like you don't get absolved for terrible things just because you had a hard life. But in the same respect, I think it's a little bit different when it's a kid. Well, when it's a kid that recognized that something was wrong and did everything in her power to fix that and then was told no. Like that's a big difference. Yeah, or ignored or was told like, shake it off or who was like actively abused by the people around her. And the cases also reminds me of is Mary Bell. Yeah. Who would later go on to be released and like have a whole ass life. And that's one of the reasons why, even though she's not a minor now, so we could probably say her name and it might not. It's a little it's a little morally ambiguous on whether we could or should do that. But I think that she deserves a fair shake. Right. You know, like, I feel like the last thing she needs is like some random podcast putting her shit out there. Yeah. Hopefully she got to start over in a sense. And I don't know if she's with her parents or sees them. Maybe she forgave them. I don't know if I could. I will say that one of the things that I saw on Facebook, because I scrolled back to the beginning, I looked through everything. Her mother stood by her through all of this. And I would like to think that most people would do that for their children. But it seemed like her mother visited her as much as she could. She tried to raise money. She tried to be there. She sent her care packages. And while she may have failed in a lot of other ways... It seemed like there was some semblance of effort and trying and like she has a cute nickname for her, which was very sweet. And there were several posts where she was like, you don't understand my daughter. Like you don't you think, you know, you don't know. Yeah. Well, hopefully she stepped up and she grew with it. Yeah. I mean, like and that's the thing, too, is that we had Deshae, 
who was victimized, right? And let terrible things happen to her daughter because of that, right? She wasn't able to be the mom that she needed to be for her kid. And then terrible things happened. And I, and I do. I hope that she grew through that. And I hope that like, I, I think that you have generational trauma here. And if you don't heal from that before you have kids, like how do you, I'm not a parent, so I don't know what it's like to have to like heal your own trauma while also being like a fierce protector for your child, right? And like, yeah, what does that look like? And what does that mean? And how do you do that if you don't have any skills to do that? Right. And like, it was on both sides in a sense too, because she was with her mom for a while. And then the horrible situation taking place with her mom's husband at the time, getting taken away, having to live with Edwin in a, it sounds like a packed apartment. Yes, it does. It really does. Right. Like a packed apartment. And I did see on some news articles, and I don't know if it's true or not, that she and Maria actually got along pretty well. And Maria was like a good mother to her in a sense. But I feel like if all of that was starting in early 2015, right, right when she was taken away, I think that trauma would kind of set her over the edge in a sense, right? Like that was like the top. And without help, what did anyone expect? Yeah, I think that what happened happened to the first person who was in the room with her. Right. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know enough to think anything else, but it doesn't seem like she was in the house hunting other people. It was like whoever came into the room. That's true. Right. And her father was like trying to interact with her and she like cut him too because he interacted with her. I think anybody who would have been in her proximity in that home would have been hurt. Yeah, but very sad case devastating i don't blame the cartoon by any means uh no no but it makes it a little creepy it adds a haunting nature to this yeah right so amanda would you like to talk about our last prank of tonight i would so we talked about it with zona shoe when she was originally discussed as dying from eternal faint do you recall this amanda i do i do we made a t-shirt about it we did it's beautiful. You should look at it. We both bought them immediately after we designed them. We were like, this is the shirt I will wear for the rest of my life. But while Zona didn't die of eternal faint, let's talk about somebody who did. So on April 1st of 1896, John Aarons decided to play a prank on his wife. And he dressed up in what was described as shabby clothes and he put on a white mask. He then knocked on the front door of their home and it was the middle of the day, mind you, right? And when his wife opened the door, he shouted at her like, like, cook me a meal, which it sounds like an old timey version of like, make me a sandwich, right? Like, doesn't that sound similar? Yeah. And it scared her so badly that she fainted and died. Yeah, she died at the hospital. Yeah. So we've seen some newspaper articles that were shared about this, but it was also on a hoax website. So we're not quite sure if it's real, but it does seem like she died of eternal faint. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in 1896, a turtle faint. My guess is maybe she had a heart attack or something like that. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Seems like. But a turtle faint makes sense. Makes sense. What a wild one. But I mean, you know, being that we, we saw newspaper articles, but now we know that newspaper articles aren't real all the time. So who could say? No, but it was very interesting. And it did come up on a lot of like April Fool's websites. Yeah. And speaking of today being April Fool's in our April Fool's episode, Today is our uh, not a prank game night with our Patreons, which we're very excited about. Yes. Yeah, we are pumped about this. We've been counting it down on our Instagram if you follow us. And if you would like to join us today, April 1st, there's still time. Yeah, tonight. It's tonight at eight. 
So long as you join Patreon before then, you too can be a part of our game night. And also, I'm a little bit obsessed with our Patreon Discord. Like, I feel like it's going. It's going well. We're sharing memes. We're talking about episodes. We're talking about new episodes. We've got horror movie recs. We've got book recommendations. I really like it. It's a fun time. Yeah. I look forward to looking at that every time I sit at my computer. I'm like, ooh, what new thing can I laugh at or be terrified by? Yeah. Is it a hermit crab with a doll head? I think that is amazing. And I've looked and talked myself out of getting hermit crabs like 25 times. But this might be the the one pro that sets it apart. Is that you can put a doll head on it? That maybe it'll move into a doll head as its shell. It's probably very bad for it. I need to do more research. But yeah, I mean, if you're a hermit crab scientist, like don't come at us. We don't know. We aren't hermit crab scientists. We are not. But like speaking of doll heads, my parents had a dog. Her name was Moxie. I called her Wiggles because she wiggled when she wagged her tail. But she had a doll toy. That, like my parents were like at a flea market. My parents were like at a yard sale. Like they got like a stuffed animal. and They were like, take this doll. And they were like, okay weird no you say no to that by the way yeah you definitely if someone's like here's this free doll you say good day and then you leave but they didn't took the doll gave it to the dog to like throw around and stuff she chewed off its face but like the way that she chewed it was like it still had its hair and its face and she would just carry around this doll head (laughs) everywhere she went like it was her baby it had blue hair what a vision When my sister was little, she had a doll that she'd carry around and she needed it. She called it my baby. However, it wasn't a standard doll. It was this horrific witch looking thing, like a Halloween decoration. Perfect. And I remember my mom always trying to talk her out of bringing it to like the grocery store and stuff. Yeah. Like, please don't bring that because people are going to look at me. Please don't bring that. And it scares me also, probably (laughs) like a little bit of like, I'm unnerved. I wish you wouldn't. (laughs) And so every time I see anyone like, oh, my daughter carries this around or my daughter wants this. And I'm like, oh, what a cute little girl. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Anyone that has hermit crabs, I want to know, one, is it safe to give them a doll head to live in? And two, if you could do that and send me pictures because I don't know if I should commit to hermit crabs. And if it's not, what animal is appropriate for a doll head? (laughs) So and with that. I hope you have a great April Fool's Day and a great weekend. Yep. Don't believe anything today. Yeah. Except that we have our game night. That's real. Because it's not a prank game night. Yeah. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at True Creeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 